right, everybody. Welcome to Calvary. As a church, we've celebrated amazing things, right? We've celebrated the Christmas season when Jesus came. We've celebrated a new year with lots of amazing opportunities in front of us. And today, for anybody who's ever lived in Jacksonville, Florida, we are celebrating the amazing comeback victory of the Jacksonville Jaguars. All right. That's all I'll say about that. Uh, hey, we as a church are not here to celebrate our favorite sports teams, <clears throat> ultimately, right? What we as a body of believers are here to do are to gather together and to do the things that the Bible tells us that us as a body should be doing. What should we be prioritizing as a group of Christians? What should we be focusing about and doing? And so what we as leadership and have communicated to you a bunch, man, what we're about here at Calvary, if you're visiting or if you're coming back, or you're just trying to, man, think, ask the question, what are these folks trying to do? We are striving with the help of the Holy Spirit uh, to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. We're striving together to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And as a leadership team, as a bunch of you as lay leaders, what we want to do is create places for you to be so that we can together jump into those things, right? Places where we can connect as a body, places where we can grow as disciples, places where we can make an impact. And uh, man, just excited because opportunities uh, for us to grow as disciples as we kick off our discipleship classes, both for the kids, which launched last week, and then for adults after this hour, uh, you know, whenever the guy with the Garth Brooks microphone on decides to stop talking, uh, in theory at 1030, we have three different classes for adults that are kicking off today. We have one on... Um, parenting. We have one on the book of Jonah, and then we have one on kind of growing closer to God through prayer. So great opportunity for you to be in a smaller setting to grow a little bit with a body, but also to grow as disciples. So we're excited about that. And we're really excited about the way that God's allowing us as a body to make an impact and not just to be inwardly focused and think about ourselves on the blue chairs, but think about people who are beyond these walls, both in our neighborhoods and communities and surrounding towns and around the world. And next week, we're going to be kicking off an opportunity that's going to run for a month for us together as a body to try to impact people with God's love by just meeting a huge need that's out there uh, um, for moms who are trying to raise their babies, many of them on their own, uh, who've decided to keep their babies, even though it imposes great hardships and stress and challenges on them. There's ways for us to come along with those moms who are keeping their babies instead of aborting them and uh, serve them. And so we'll have an opportunity to do that. Um, we'll talk about that next month. And we're grateful for the partnership we have with people around the world. And this fall, we had something called the Impact Conference, and a bunch of you picked up these little cards, which are prayer cards, where we kind of distributed things out so that uh, every, every month we're actively and purposely praying for our missionaries and global partners around the world. And so just a reminder, if you picked up one of these handy cards and you shoved it on the visor of your car or, you know, on your fridge, we'd love for you to just remind us all the opportunity to pray and support our people who are uh, serving God around the world and making an impact. And one of the great cool things that came out of that was uh, y'all's kindness and generosity and stewardship. And through that, there were some ways, and we've already talked about a bunch of this, but man, we really helped a bunch of Christians 
in Southeast Asia who are facing significant persecution, and God allowed us to give out of how he's blessed us to bless them. And one of the ways that we're really excited about is through your kindness, uh, the people in this church, we're able to support a church planter uh, in Southeast Asia for one year. And he's got an amazing story, and um, if you want to read about him, and I encourage you to, uh, there's information in the coffee area by the map. There's a little bio on this gentleman. It's a privilege for us for a year that that gentleman who's uh, stepping away from his job and what he's been doing to serve God in, in rural Southeast Asia, that you have partnered around him and were able to support him. So God's doing a lot of great things. We're excited about it and just love to give you some highlights. Um, and I'm excited about this sermon series. Uh, I am, uh, you know, when I say this, I get so many emails, people just, no, I don't. But I'm, can you, I know, I don't look 50, but I'm 50. I think I've like been in a, tr- I know, all right now, you guys are gonna be like, seriously, dude, I thought you're like 34 years old. I'm, I know, the, the Botox under Calvary's health program is just, <laughs> it's just remarkable. Um, but, I, you know, I'm 50 years old. I think somehow I've been in church for 54 years. I don't even know how that happens. But I am daily, honest to goodness, man, I have been to seminary. I took several years out of my everything to stop to learn the Bible. I am daily learning new things about God's Word. It is amazing that for those of us who have been God's Word for decades, there is so much in here that we can continually learn. And I'm learning a lot in my own personal time as I'm reading through Jeremiah and working through that. And Every Monday when I crack open the book of Revelation to prepare this, which was our sermon series, it's like, dude, I'm learning so much. And so I am excited not just about how God's helping us press into our vision, but the way that he's helping us do that through uh, his word. And so we're going to jump into our sermon series and our sermon for the day. And I will pray and I will ask him to work uh, for his purposes through our time together. Father, we are grateful for I'm grateful for this body, and I'm grateful for the way that there's so many people who are just caring for one another in ways that on Sunday mornings we don't hear about. And I'm thankful for the intentionality of friends in this body to check in each other and meet needs. I'm thankful for the generosity of our body, Father, in helping meet one another's needs and helping meet needs around the world. Thank you that we can partner in your kingdom work and that you enable us to do that. Thank you that we can come freely this morning and open up your word and later on talk about topics that are relevant. And in everything we do, Father, we want to um, know you and know you better, and we want our lives to reflect that knowledge of you. And so I pray what I always pray, Father, you know what we're all going through, you know where we are, and uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives this morning through your word to shape us and to change us and to teach us in ways that will be honoring and glorifying to you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, uh, we are in our sermon series in Revelation. We've been in this since the fall. We're going to be in this uh, at least again rolling up to the fall. And if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe for some of you, you've studied Revelation more than you've studied anything else in your entire life, right? Like every every day you're studying the book of Revelation. So this may be a good opportunity for you to, uh, you know, revisit it and hear some things maybe you haven't heard or come at it from a different perspective. Maybe some of you are Christians and you've never, ever, ever cracked open the book of Revelation, but it freaks you out and you're scared of it, so you kind of avoid it, like a COVID-infected house, right? You don't want anything to do with it. Um, And if that's your story, I just want to encourage you that, yeah, there's a lot of challenging and hard and weird uh, and somewhat intimidating things in the book, but ultimately this is a book of hope. 
It's a book of immense hope about a king who adores you, who is striving and committed to making everything that is broken right. The story of Revelation is a story of hope that one day every single thing will be fixed. And so for you, if you've never studied it, it's an amazing opportunity to be reminded of the hopes that come. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're of another faith tradition or you're not of any faith tradition, but for whatever reason you keep coming here and we're so grateful, even if you don't believe in the story of Christianity, this is an amazing opportunity for you over the next few weeks and months together to learn, well, what do Christians believe about hope? Right? All these people that believe in Jesus, what is the hope? What is the thing that they've anchored their lives to waiting to see fulfilled? And that's what we're going to be talking about and have talked about in our series. If you've got a Bible or you've got a device, uh, open it up to Revelation chapter 6. We started a motto a few months ago of grab a bulletin, bring a Bible, grab a bulletin, bring a Bible. Uh, but if you've got a, a Bible or device, open it up to Revelation 6. That's where we're going to be today. And a little bit of what we do today, we got to remember what we studied last week. And if you weren't here, here is a, and you didn't watch the uh, catch up on the sermon, here's a, a, just a minute or two reminder, review of where we were last week, because it is kind of necessary for what we're doing um, this week. Last week was our first time back in the series, and so we've been off for the Christmas holiday. So we just spent a good bit of time reviewing what we've seen in Revelation so far, right? What's the structure of the book? What's the four or five different ways to approach the book? Which way are we taking? And we decided as a church that, well, I guess me, what we're taking is a futurist view. And there's, again, other views. We talked about the idealist. We talked about the historist. We talked about the preterist. Man, what good name. But we're going to take the futurist view. This is not, there's tons of Christians who hold to other views. This is not inspired, and I could be wrong, right? But, but we're picking one. And the futurist view of this book says that the book was written in about 95 AD. Oh, I didn't change the slide again. Daggummit. And here we are in 2023. My wife is glaring, not glaring, looking at me lovingly because she's like, you know, it said 2022, right? So here we are in 2023. And what the book of the futurist view says is when John wrote the book, he was much of the book is looking at events that have yet to occur. So as we're here in 2023, we're studying about things that have yet to occur at the end of biblical history and human history, right? A, a kind of a futurist approach. And last week, we moved into the first part of Revelation that starts talking about things that are yet to come. And before that, we were talking about seven churches, and those were all in John's real time. In 95 AD, seven churches that had dysfunction and had chaos and had some good things. How do they improve and change? And last week, we moved into the very first step of things that have not yet happened, right? Things that are to come. And we were in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, and here's what we studied and read. This is what we unpacked last week. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And we talked about the symbolicness of this scroll, that this represents either perhaps, uh, a, symbolically represents a deed to the earth, or it represents the rescue plan to fix everything. And we talked a good bit about that last week. And it's sealed, and there's seven seals on it, which was common back in the day of what you did with legal structures. And what we saw was that there is a hero coming who is able to take the scroll 
and is able to implement and take full claim to the earth to fix it and, and implement the rescue plan and come to fix us. And that hero, that king, that deliverer, what we saw last week was Jesus. And so today we're going to move into the very first thing that Jesus is going to do as part of his rescue plan, right? The very first phase is about to be rolled out and implemented. And we see that in Revelation verses, chapter 6, verse 1. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. And today, as we kind of walk through that, we're going to work through five questions, all right? Five questions to consider. And the first question is, we're going to read something in Revelation 6.1 about a seal, and the question is going to be, okay, what's the deal with that? Then we're going to talk about what is the tribulation? Some of you may know all about that. Some of you have been like, dude, I don't know. Then we're going to talk about how are we going to even approach our discussion. Then we're going to talk about what should we keep in mind. Then we're going to start to skate onto the ice of the final question of, okay, will Christians go through this thing known as the tribulation period? All right, that's kind of the, the path we're on today. Five questions. Significance of what we're going to read. What is the tribulation? How are we going to approach our discussion about Revelation 6 and the tribulation? What should we keep in mind? And will Christians go through the tribulation period? Okay? So, Revelation 6, verse 1. This is what it said. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. I watched when the lamb opened one of the seals, seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. So Jesus, who is the king, who is coming, who is able to implement this rescue plan, symbolically is opening up this scroll and he's ripping off that first seal. Now, for the remainder of these verses in a big chunk, right, it's going to be seal, open, seal, open, seal opening. And the question comes, our first question, okay, well, what's the significance of Jesus opening up these seals, right? Like, what's the significance? And here's the significance under a futurist view. The significance of Jesus opening up these seals and the first seal opening is that under a futurist view, right, so if you're in that camp, it begins a moment in biblical prophecy known as the tribulation. It begins a moment in biblical prophecy known as the tribulation. Again, I have, we have friends, there's other Christians who are going to say, no, that's what not all a seal means, and there's, we're going to be with them in heaven, and they may be right, but we're taking the approach that that first seal means that this period in human history and biblical history known as the tribulation is about to start. And every seal, what we're going to start seeing next week, each seal that is ripped open is one more element or reality describing what's going to take place during that tribulation period. So with every seal that's open, it's going to describe an event or something happening. And each of those events or something happening is going to be what is going on during the tribulation period. So that kind of sets up the next question, right? Um, and again, we're going to walk through this, and today's going to have a little more of a teaching feel than perhaps a preaching feel. Um, but works through this next question. Okay, well, what is the tribulation? What is the tribulation? And again, some of you, you've immersed yourself uh, in a study of the tribulation. Others of you haven't, but here's some broad strokes about what this 
uh, term, what this phrase, what this moment is. It's a yet-to-be-experienced moment in human and biblical history. It's a moment yet to be experienced, and structurally, it's what is described in Revelations chapters um, 8 through, well, chapter 6, and you can flip the next slide. It's what is dealt with in Revelations chapter 6 through 18. Revelations chapter 6 through 18 deal with the tribulation period, and it's also discussed in other places in the Bible, like Matthew 24, for instance. Um, Matthew 24, verse 21, in 24 is a big section that deals with this, and Jesus says these words, for then there will be tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. Revelation 8 through uh, 6 through 18 deal with it, and Matthew 24 deals with it, Daniel 9 deals with it, different places in Scripture that deal with this. The purpose of the tribulation is this, to deal with sin and wickedness in the world. To deal with sin and wickedness in the world. Many times the question that Christians ask, tons of times the questions that non-Christians ask, is why would a loving God allow evil to happen? Right? Why would a good and loving and just God allow evil to happen? Well, God doesn't necessarily answer that question for us in a way that is pleasing. But what God does say is, hey, there is going to come a day when I'm not going to allow it anymore. There is going to come a day when there will be justice, when everything that wasn't dealt with will be dealt with, right? When things will begin to be shaped the way that they should be. And part of the purpose of this tribulation is to deal with sin and wickedness in the world where God says, right, before I can make everything right, I need to deal with all the things that are wrong. If you've ever repaired anything, like my amazing engine in my car that we thought was broken, but a miracle happened, and it's not broken. Um, it was a bad starter, right? But, before, well, yes, I guess it was. I don't know. I just paid the bill. But before they could repair the engine, they had to remove the broken things in the engine, right? If you've ever repaired a dishwasher, repaired your car, there's something that's broken, and in order to fix it, the first thing you got to do is get rid of what is wrong with it. Get rid of what is bad about it. Get rid of it that's not working the way it should be. And that's the story of the Bible. Before God can ultimately fix the world, he's got to get rid of the things in the world that aren't the way they should be. And that is a big purpose of the tribulation, to deal with sin and wickedness, to deal with all the things that have broken and shattered the world that God has created and the people who live in the world. To purge the world of sin, to judge those people who rebel against God, and it's a period of time when scripturally it talks about how God's, and this is important for later conversation, God's wrath is poured out on the world. It's a period of time where God's wrath is poured out against sin because a just God has to deal with sin. And so, right, how are we going to approach kind of this topic, these verses? What are we going to do? Well, here's what we're going to do today as we think about how we're going to approach this. The first thing that we're going to do today, um, and let me just say this about the tribulation. It's this period as this is happening of just unique and elevated suffering on the world. A period of unique and elevated suffering and hardship on his world. 
And so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk into this, and the rest of our time, as we think about what we're doing today, is going to be spent talking about um, some broad kind of theological issues around the tribulation, some broad theological issues around the tribulation. We're going to set up some, some big ideas, and then next week, what we're going to do is we're going to work through chapter 6 with this first seal that opens up, okay? So today is broad pictures around the, um, topics around the tribulation, and next week we're going to work our way through chapter 6. What do we need to keep in mind as we're stepping into this first thing and thinking about this tribulation moment that is yet to come? A few things for us to keep in mind. The first is this. These are incredibly complicated issues. Incredibly complicated issues. I don't think this is exaggeration, but if it is, it's only slight. For every one perspective in view, there's a contrary perspective in view with about four subviews, all right? So for every perspective, I mean, almost everything that I've already said, there's people on this side who have different views, and within the people on this side who have different views, there's subviews, right? This is a very complicated issue. There are layers upon layers upon layers to be worked through as we talk about it. Um, a lot of different Bible passages have to be read together. Have you ever cooked spaghetti? Anybody here ever cooked spaghetti? Spaghetti, right? I, I've been told by Italians that spaghetti isn't even like a real Italian pasta. Is that true or not? I don't know. Somebody told me it's like an American pasta. It's not real. I don't know. All I know is when I go out to like Italian restaurants, there's spaghetti. Have you ever cooked spaghetti? Now, I know there's tri this is my pet peeve about when I cook spaghetti. It might probably didn't happen to you because there are a lot of amazing Italian cooks in the house, right? But, but here's what, if I'm not careful, sometimes happens to me. You boil the pasta, it's ready. You cook it al dente, al to the tooth, right? You cook it al dente. You try it. Oh, it's perfect. Then you pour it into the colander. Then all the hot steaming water goes out. Then there's this group, there's these noodles right there. Then what happens is this. You get distracted because your dog's eating the Christmas tree or a kid is knocked over a sippy cup or some UPS guy, some of the thing, and you come back to that pot. Grace Creek is like scowling at me, right? She's like, this is horrible. That's not what you do. You come back to that pile of noodles, and what has happened to those noodles? They've all stuck together. Have you ever had that happen to you? Nobody has. It's just me. I'm so sorry. Then there's all sorts of debates about how you stop that, right? Some people say you put oil in the water. It doesn't happen. I don't think that's true. Some people say you got to put it in the sauce quick. That actually probably seems to be the correct thing, right? But when those noodles are all stuck together and you're trying to serve your little kids some spaghetti, you, you pull out that, and they're all tangled, and it's almost like you have to go noodle. You have to pull them off of each other because they're all just connected. Anytime you pull up one noodle, another noodle is coming along with it, right? That, we, when we get into where we are now, we are in a pile of spaghetti noodles of theology and Bible that all sticks together. And so we cannot just talk about one thing without realizing there's all these other things that are involved in it. And so over the next months, we're going to try to just carefully go spaghetti noodle by spaghetti noodle. What else is touched to it? What's connected to it? This is a complicated issue. There are so many books that have been written about this issue. There have been so many books written about all of these sub-issues because it's complicated. 
Second huge point to keep in mind, and I don't think in this generation this is as big a deal, but I'm just telling you, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, 70s, early 80s, I think a lot of Christians forgot this next point, and we need to make sure we remember it. Here it is. One's view of the tribulation and related issues does not impact one's salvation. Okay? We are presenting one perspective that I happen to think is the correct one, but it might not be. But if somebody disagrees with a perspective, it, this isn't, we're not better Christians because we have one approach to this book. We're, right? Other people who disagree with us are not not Christians. And I think a lot of times it's people got angry about all this. And it got like, well, if you don't see everything I wear, I don't even know if you're a Christian. Whether you believe the approaches we're going to take does not impact whether or not you're a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is not if they agree with a certain flow chart about a book that is very confusing. What makes a person a Christian is how they responded to what Jesus did on the cross for them as a sacrifice. Um, and it's just important to keep that in mind. Third thing to keep in mind as we unpack this, and this struck me this week, it's not novel. All throughout the Old Testament, there are so many prophecies about the Messiah. There are countless number of prophecies about the Messiah. And then Jesus comes, and everybody misses it. Everybody had an opinion about what the Messiah would be like based on the prophecy for thousands and thousands of years. But when the fulfillment of the prophecy actually showed up, Everybody's like, whoa, we, whoa, we didn't think that's the way it's going to happen, right? And for you and I now, we can look back at the verses and say, how could they have been wrong? How could they have missed it? But for thousands of years, people who followed God had all sorts of prophecies about what it would be like when Jesus comes the first time. But when he came, they, they didn't properly understand the prophecies. They were a little surprised by the, who he was and who he wasn't, and they had to adjust to it. And so... I just say that um, to link into the next point, that we need to approach this topic humbly. All right, we need to approach this topic with humility, understanding we are taking our best effort to understand a book and prophecies about things that are yet to happen, and we're going to try to get our handle around it and our teeth around it, but we could be wrong. Um, and so we need to approach it humbly. Last point to keep in mind is this. This is a study of the book of Revelation, and it's not a study of the book of Daniel. And I only say that because Daniel has so much to do with all this stuff, and for those of you who have immersed yourself in this, you're just waiting for like 70 weeks of Daniel and seven weeks of this, and, th and we're not going to get into that because we'll maybe do that when we do Daniel, all right? So Revelation, not Daniel. Revelation is going to be the, boil, the blueprint that we use to walk through our approach to these different um, end time conversation. So, here's the last kind of big chunk of what we're going to discuss today, okay? Um, and we're going to call it right, we're going to, we bump some of it into to, um, next week's conversation as well, right? But we've talked about Revelation 6.1, first seal that opens, first part of the rescue plan is God doing things on the earth to purge the earth of sin and to deal with sin. And when that seal opens up, it's going to describe part of what's the tribulation. That seal opens up, describes the tribulation uh, period that's beginning when this God's wrath comes on the earth. And so the question that a lot of Christians have, the question that a lot of people have, the question that's discussed a lot is this question of, will Christians go through the tribulation period? Will Christians go through the tribulation period? 
Let's bring the worship team up and sing our last song. <laughs> what if I really did that? That'd be amazing. That's a great question. Why don't you all just pray about it and the Lord will reveal it to you. All right. Will Christians go through the tribulation period? Have you ever heard anybody ask that question before? Maybe you've heard about the tribulation and you've asked that question. Um, we all know the answer we want, but the, the, what does the text say? Okay, so that's we're going to approach it humbly. And, and so at the end of this discussion, I will not be able to answer that question for you in a way that I say I am 100% certain that this is the answer, thus saith the Lord. Um, I'm not going to be able to answer that question for you because I don't think the text answers that question with certainty. And if the text didn't answer that, if the text did answer that question with certainty, then there wouldn't be about seven different orthodox, evangelical, conservative answers to that question, okay? The reason there are three to four different views on the answer to that question is because the text does not answer it with certainty. I could lie to you. I could have gotten up here and says, the Bible's clear about this. There's no question about it, but that wouldn't be true, okay? I can't answer for you if the, with certainty, I'm going to tell you what I think at, like, in a few weeks, maybe. I can't answer the question with certainty um, about it because I don't think the text does. But there's one thing that I can answer and tell you with absolute certainty because the text does tell us this with absolute certainty and this. We talked about that the tribulation period is a period when the wrath of God is going, when, when the wrath of God is going to fall upon the earth, okay? That's part of it, a period of undue hardship for people on the earth, part of which is linked with the fact that God's wrath is going to fall on the earth. What is clear with absolute certainty is that a Christian will never, ever, ever experience the wrath of God. A Christian will never, ever, ever experience the wrath of God. I can say that with 150% certainty because the text clearly says this. First Thessalonians, a few different places to say that, but First Thessalonians 5 verse 9 says this. Now, <clears throat> some of these verses and some of the other verses dealing with this are talking about wrath for our sin, but others are clearly talking about the wrath that's going to come later on through the tribulation period. Here's an example where we see with certainty. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation for the Lord Jesus Christ. Four chapters earlier in 1 Thessalonians 1, it says this word, right? We're to wait for his son from heaven who raised us from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. We weren't destined for wrath. We see that Jesus promises to deliver us from God's wrath. And then another place we see this is in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, where it says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Justified is a big fancy word that means declared righteous. Since we've been declared righteous, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. What we can say with absolute certainty, because the text tells us with absolute certainty, is that if you are a Christian, if you are a person who has responded in faith to the work of Jesus on the cross, which was a substitute for you, you have absolute certainty and confidence that you will never, ever, ever, ever experience the wrath of God. You will never experience his wrath for your sin, 
that you committed or will commit, you will never experience any wrath that happens to be rained down on anything around you because Jesus promises with certainty, if you're a Christian, no wrath, okay? So, then the question becomes this question. You ready for this question? If the tribulation is a period in time when God's wrath is poured out on the earth, and if Christians are promised that they will never experience the wrath of God, the question is, well, how will Christians then be protected? How will Christians be protected and spared from the wrath of God that will be poured out on the earth during the tribulation period? There's a verse that we talked about when we were going through the seven churches in Revelation 3.10, right? In Revelation 3.10, this verse that we talked about in one of the churches kind of set up this conversation. We tagged it. So we know with certainty a Christian will never experience the wrath of God. We know that the tribulation is going to be a period of time when the wrath of God comes on the earth. So the question is, how is God going to protect Christians? Will they be present? Will they not be present? How is that going to work? Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 gives us some insight into that question. And here's what it said, okay? He's talking to a church, and he says, "'Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth.'" Okay? "'Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth.'" The hour of trial is referring to the tribulation, the tribulation when God's wrath is on the earth. And what Jesus is promising is, hey, church Christians, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. I'm going to keep you from the wrath of God in that moment that's going to be poured out on the earth. There are then two different paths or options about what that word keep from means, okay? Two different thoughts about what that word keep from means. And I have a table to help us figure out those thoughts and other stuff, okay? This is the earth. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing, right? This is the earth. And what some people think is that um, keep from and these are Christians, okay? Let's say that this green block represents Christians. And here are Christians on the earth. What some group of people think is that, well, let's look at the normal usage of those terms, keep from, okay? Uh, keep from means, what they will argue, if, that it's this idea of removed from, okay? It's this idea, the phrase keep from, first option means removed from. And so this line of thinking is that um, what God will do is before he starts pouring out his wrath on the earth, he will, this is the earth, these are Christians. This is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Remember that? <laughs> I don't really know if that was the like most compelling commercial anyway, like whatever, another story for another day. Okay, what most people, some people think is keep you from means I am going to remove you. <sighs> Christians are not there. And then, and I already told Dave Katz, I will clean this all up later today, right? Because he's about to have a stroke, right? And so then when God pours out his wrath on the world, right, they are not there. They are kept from it. Um, that's an interesting, compelling 
argument, thought could be, okay? But one approach is that keep from means removed from, okay? Whoop, you won't be there. And in a minute, we'll talk about what that uh, moves us into and all stuff. But the second view does not mean removed from, okay? The second view is flows out of, there's only one other time in Scripture where this phrase is used. There's only one other place in the Bible where the phrase keep from is used in this Greek uh, structure, all right? And the, that only other place where it's used, and one rule of biblical interpretation is, if you want to know, man, this is a mess. If you want to know what a phrase means in one place, then you look to the other places that it was used. The only other place that this phrase was used in the Scripture is towards the end of Jesus' life in John 17, 15. And in John 17, 15, Jesus is praying. And he's praying for his disciples, and he's actually praying for all of his disciples after that for you and me. And, and this is the prayer that he asks them, right? He's praying to the Father about Christians. And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Same exact phrase used by Jesus here in John as Jesus uses when he's talking to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 3. In this context, what the phrase means, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. You know what that means? That means what Jesus is saying is, Father, look, look. He's, and he's not talking about the end times. He's just talking about life. He's talking about like, Father, as Christians are living their every days in this world, they are still in the world. But my prayer, Father, right, is that as they are still where they are, you will somehow keep them from the enemy. And it's this idea of shielding or protecting. It doesn't go anywhere, but it's shielded. Jesus' prayer is this. Father, don't take all the Christians out of the world right now, right? They're still going to be following me. But as they are exactly where they are, I pray you will keep them from. I pray you will shield them from the attacks of the enemy and the influences of the enemy, and you will offer special protection. And so what some people think is that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, when this phrase is used, it has the exact same meaning. And so the phrase in Revelation 3.10, the only other time the phrase is used, the only other time that Jesus himself says those words, Jesus in Revelation, when referring to the tribulation, is not saying, hey, get them out of the world. What Jesus is promising to do is, hey, in the world, I will still keep you from what is going to happen. And so, in other words, during the tribulation, when the wrath of God comes, it's this concept of shielding us, right, so that none of that hits us. And it's not shielding by removing from, it's keeping us by protecting us through. It's not removal from, it's protecting us through. Um, and so, interestingly, there's precedent for this idea. Because we see God doing this a few other times throughout the Bible. For those of us uh, who may know a little bit of the Bible, and for those of us who don't, there was a period of time when the Jewish people, 
The green box, right? Well, when the Jewish people were in Egypt and God poured out punishment upon Egypt in the plagues and he was trying to rescue and redeem the Jewish people and so he had to punish the sin and so he caused all these plagues which were part of his wrath to fall upon the Egyptians but not a single amount of that punishment or plague ever hit the Jewish people because they were particularly shielded from them during the plagues. If you're familiar with the story of Noah, and the ark. God's wrath poured out on the world to judge sin. God did not remove Noah from the world. God kept Noah in the world when his wrath and judgment came down, but he particularly protected and shielded Noah in the world so that Noah never experienced any of the judgment that was poured out on the world. There is precedent for this idea of and the promise that I will keep you from the hour of trial, there's precedent in the Bible that that does not necessarily mean removing and taking away. There's precedent that that means keeping exactly where you are, but particularly sheltering you through that. Okay? Now, I can't say with certainty which one of those... Good grief, I'm not going to be able to preach next week's sermon because I'm going to be cleaning up paper for the next week. Um, I can't say with certainty which one is right, okay? Um, and, but what I, if, you, if I had to choose, man, I think this concept in Revelation 3.10, um, when Jesus is saying, I will keep you from the hour of trial, I think that because of how it's used in the past, I think because of the Greek language, that what it is conveying is not removal from, but shielding through. I think that verse in isolation, and you never read a verse in isolation, but I think that that promise in Revelation to Christians about what's going to happen when this hour of trial comes seems to suggest, in my opinion, not a removal from, but a shielding through. I could be wrong, but that's what I think it seems to suggest. Now, there are are a bunch of people who think that it is a removal, right? It is a whoosh, okay? There are other passages of Scripture that can be read to uh, suggest a removal. Um, and what starts to happen is for those who think, no, 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 Revelation 3.10, when it talks about keeping from, it means God's going to get you out of here. You're not going to, right? You're going to remove you from it. Then that then builds, creates this idea of the rapture, okay? Again, I know some people, like, you're just figuring out Christianity. You've never heard of the phrase the rapture. Others of you, you got, like, a rapture countdown on your, your refrigerator or something, right? Um, uh, <laughs> And it wasn't in 1988. I don't care that there were 88 reasons. So some of y'all need to confess that. Uh, what happens is then what people do is say, well, if that verse means to get out of, the remove from, and if there's other verses that maybe could suggest removing from, then, then there is this thing that must be called the rapture. Right? There is this thing that must mean that God is going to rapture Christians up out of the world um, to go be with him. And next week, that's what we're going to start to talk about, all right? We're going to look at some verses that may uh, suggest 
the rapture. We're going to look at the verses for the people who say this is removal from, and it has to be from rapture, what they look to. We're going to see what the verses themselves say, and I'm not necessarily saying they do or don't support that. Um, what, what, then we're going to talk about if those verses legitimately do support a removal from, then when in relation to this tribulation period could that happen? Because there are three different thoughts about when in relation to the tribulation period that can happen, all right? So next week, and I did this, but I could have kept going. We're at 34 minutes. I could have gone for 59 minutes this morning, and it would be amazing. But I remember a friend of mine saying these words to me. Pete, when it's communion Sunday, you're supposed to preach shorter. What's wrong with you? So in honor of that, I'm preaching shorter. Uh, but next week, the question will be, if it's removal from, what verses support that? And, and do the verses really support that? And if they do support that, then what are the different views on the timing of when that might happen in, in, in the tribulation? All right, that's next week. And so we're going to keep building on each other. These spaghetti straws, um, but I learned a ton um, as I was studying for this next rapture section on, man, what some of those verses do say and don't say. Uh, I'll invite the worship team to come up here now. And I just have uh, two kind of closing thoughts as they make their way up here, right? So... We talked a little theology, we talked a little one verse, right? But like practically, for those of us who today didn't necessarily want to come here and hear a classroom lesson on different views of the tribulation, you didn't necessarily walk in the room this morning to hear Greek used in this verse and other verse and what does it mean? You came here because you got a lot going on in your life. And you came here because you're like, man, I got a ton going on and I need to be in a place where maybe I'll hear from God. Um, and, and you have heard from God because he's telling you truth about ultimate hope. But here's one practical thought for all of us um, to think about today. There are tons of questions about the book of Revelation. And there are tons of questions about the timing of it and the whens of it, and about how it all works out, right? Tons of questions about in this book, like, what's the timing of it all? What's the why of it all? What's the when of it all? When is it all going to work out? And there is a sovereign God who, even though we don't know those answers with certainty about everything, who does know those answers with certainty about everything. As we're going through this series, and you may have questions about the book of Revelation, and why is this happening, when does this happening, how does it all fit together, you can rest assured that even if we're not able to tightly answer those things, God knows the answer to everything, and God knows how it all comes together. And maybe you're in a place this morning where the questions that you're asking are not simply about how the book of Revelation all fits together. Maybe the questions that you're asking this morning are questions about how does what's going on in my life all fit together? What's the why of why these things are happening? What's the when 
of when God's all going to make some things happen or the timing of things or the setting of things. Or you're looking around with these questions and you're at a crossroads where there's unknowns and you're waiting. And what keeps you up at night or wakes you up early in the morning is, man, how is this all going to work and fit together? Not just in the book of Revelation, but in my life, in my journey, in my story. And maybe you come here with those questions and those knowns and you're waiting and you're wondering and you're praying and there's silence and there's crickets and how does it all work out? Well, here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. The same God who sovereignly knows how every single thread of the book of Revelation perfectly comes together in the end is the same God who knows how every single thread in your story and in your life perfectly comes together in the end. He's planned the book of Revelation. He knows the book of Revelation. He's authored the book of Revelation. And he's in charge of everything that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. And he knows your story. He's authored your story. He's planned your story. And he's in charge of every single thing that's going to happen in your story. There is a sovereign God who knows how it all comes together. So trust him. Trust him. And trust him even when the questions in your life are just as murky and unknown as the questions in the book of Revelation. That's the first thought this morning. And the second thought is this. It's something that we've already talked about but for Christians this morning, the encouragement is this. And we don't think about this a lot because we numb ourselves to this through Jaguars games and stuff and misplaced priorities, and we take this for granted a lot. And, and, and it doesn't move us often as it should, but here's what I want to encourage you of. Like I said before, as a Christian, you will never, ever, ever experience the wrath of God but I deserve to. I deserve to. Because there's been moments in my life where I've said to God, God, whatever, I know better than you. Shut up. I'm going to do what I want to do. Just take a seat in the back, and I'll tell you if I want to hear from you again. I have done that to a creator God who is supernatural and divine. And man, I deserve every ounce of punishment for my arrogance and my pride and my sin and for flipping him off and doing my own thing. But you and I as Christians will never, ever experience that wrath. You know why? Because Jesus experienced it for us. And if you're not a Christian, what the story tells us is, hey, you flipped God off. You thought you knew better than God. You thought there was something to be gained by running from God instead of running to God, and so you ran, and you ran, and you ran. And in your rebellion against God, there are consequences that must come because a just God has to deal with everything that is broken and wrong, and that means dealing with your sin. But the hope for you is that you never, ever, ever have to experience the wrath of God because Jesus experienced it for you too. The story of the gospel is that Jesus was a substitute for us. And all of this wrath and chaos and punishment that we should have gotten from God because of our choices, Jesus said, God, don't you lay a single hand on them in punishment. You punish me instead. 
That's the gospel. Jesus was punished instead of you. Jesus was punished for you, and Jesus was punished because of you. Because Jesus loves you. And what is offered is, man, hope of forgiveness and restoration and purity. And as Christians, that is the confidence we have this morning. We have the confidence that a sovereign God knows how every thread in your story fits together. And a sovereign, powerful God will never pour anything but steadfast love and faithfulness upon you. And he will never pour an ounce of his wrath upon you because you are protected from that because of Jesus. Because Jesus paid it all. And so today I'm going to invite you, if you're a Christian, a few moments to come forward to remember that and to affirm that. And what we're going to do this morning is in a book that has a lot of questions, we're going to cling to the one thing about which there is no question, which is what Jesus has done for you and me. And so if you're a believer this morning, we have an opportunity to come forward, and I'll ask the elders to come forward to the tables uh, to hold the elements. You have an opportunity to come forward to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made and to express your thankfulness to the Father and to the Son for that sacrifice. And if you're not a Christian, this is something that Christians do to affirm their faith, to say what they believe. And if you don't believe it, then you ought not to come forward. But I would simply say to you, man, what are you looking to for hope? What are you looking to for confidence? What are you looking to for peace? And is that thing ultimately going to deliver, or is it promised you something that it can never fulfill? What we'll do this morning is when you're ready and as you're ready, the worship team will start playing, and I'll invite you to come forward to take the elements. And then when everybody has it, please you know, return to your seats, and I'll come forward, and I'll walk us through taking it together. All right? Let me pray, and then I'll invite you to come forward. Father, this morning, with all the questions that we have, uh, not just about the book of Revelation, but about our lives, um, I'm thankful that you have all of that in your hand. And in your sovereignty, you created and designed us before we were born. And you have created us in advance for good works to do. And you know what our days will hold. And every single one of them has been authored by you. And I'm thankful for that confidence. And Father, I'm thankful uh, for what Jesus has done. And that Jesus willingly gave himself as a sacrifice and a substitute and was punished for me so that I would never have to know what it means to be punished by a powerful, almighty creator God, so that we could only know what it means to be loved and cared for and held by a loving, almighty creator God. We're thankful for Jesus who willingly, because of love and for glory, put himself in a place of immense pain and suffering and paid the cost for us so that we don't have to. Father, I pray that we will remember this well through this time of the Lord's Supper now and that it will help us affirm the hope we have today and the hope that is coming. Uh, we're thankful. Amen.